chapter nine of the egregious english by t w h crossland this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter nine the churches the english have one sauce but the number of their religions is as the sands of the sea roughly speaking they divide themselves religiously into two classes anglicans and nonconformists the anglicans one may say are reformed catholics the nonconformists reformed anglicans apparently all english religions with the exception of course of the catholic religion which is not counted date from or since the reformation we know what the reformation means in scotland though the english notion of it seems to be a trifle vague we also know in scotland what religion means i doubt if the english have any such knowledge one has only to visit an average anglican or nonconformist church on the sabbath to perceive that in england religion is under a cloud and has almost ceased to be a spiritual matter in the first place you will notice that the congregation is for the most part composed of women and children englishmen are too busy or too bored to go to church on the sabbath what little faith what little religious fervour or feeling they ever possessed has been knocked out of them and they no longer go to church and this change has been accomplished not by the failure of dogmas not by the spread of free thought not by secularists anti-clericalists or philosophers but simply by an indolent clergy on the one hand and cheap railway fares on the other the mediocre preacher and the new-fangled english weekend have emptied the churches of england's manhood the women and children are left a puling bemused crowd and to these the english shepherds and pastors blate their cheap ritual and read their ill-considered sermons it is curious to note how easily an english parson or nonconformist minister can make a reputation for greatness as a preacher let him be just a little more competent than the average and people flock to hear him i doubt if there is a really great preacher alive in england to-day yet there are three or four who pass for great and who are supposed to be in line with st paul john knox and wesley to give instances would be invidious but i have no hesitation in asserting that the preachments offered in london at the three or four great churches which are supposed to enshrine orators are as a rule exceedingly feeble efforts tricked out with gods and mannerisms packed with trite sentiment and utterly devoid of doctrine inspiration and value there are not three bishops on the english bench that can furnish forth a sermon worth going fifty yards to hear there is not a nonconformist minister who has a soul above stodginess convention and a convenient if threadbare scriptural tag the salvation army perhaps have the fervour and the courage but they lack wisdom and they have no art the congregationalists have some of the wisdom and a touch of the art but they have no fervour indeed wherever you turn you find that the recognised english religionists have given themselves up to a decadent hebraic emotion and let the solid things of the spirit the hebraic culture the hebraic vision the hebraic passion pass by them gradually the churches of this remarkable country are ceasing to have anything to do with religion at all religion be hanged say those who run them religion no longer appeals to the wayward stony-hearted overdriven half-educated english populace what is wanted is social brightness and warmth the religion of brotherhood and the full belly 
so that we will give magic lantern entertainments in our churches on the lord's day we will go in bald-headed for pleasant sunday afternoons hot coffee and veal and ham pies and screws of tobacco given away at the doors wrapped up in a tract which you are at liberty either to read or to light your pipe with as for the english priests that had the authenticity of god they are no longer sure whether they have that authority or not of course they believe they have it in a sacerdotal canonical and private way but not one of them dare stand up and swear by his powers publicly the bishops are all for peace and quietness if you please we are your friends and not your masters say they to their clergy and their clergy to use an english vulgarism wink the other eye and the clergy too in turn are the friends and not the masters of common men they are so much your friends indeed that providing you mount a silk hat on sunday and put a penny on the plate you can depend upon a friendly shake of the hand and a kindly grin of recognition six days in the week even though you happen to be a bookmaker or the keeper of a bucket shop for the nonconformist clergy if clergy they may be called they speak humorously at tea-parties they enter into hat-trimming competitions at bazaars and they play principal guest at the tables of overfed tradesmen there is not a man amongst them who can say boo to a goose there is not a man amongst them who as a social unit is worth a hundred and fifty pounds a year and a man's with ten pounds per annum for each child that a glozing unintellectual english congregation hands over to him out of the ease and security and respectability and dolce far niente which the church of england provides for a considerable proportion of her priests she has managed to evolve a few scholars a few men of letters perhaps an odd saint or two and an odd man of temperament and mark but what have the english nonconformists produced dr horton and dr parker and that g r sims of religionists the rev hugh price hughes to this distinguished triumvirate though the english nonconformist will hold up pious hands in horror at the notion one may add that valiant thumper of the pulpit drum general booth who is doing a work in religious decadence and bathetism which it will take centuries to undo want of heart and want of mind coupled with the blessed spirit of tolerance have indeed played havoc with the english churches the loosening of the grip of the church on english society has of course not been without its results on english morals and on english society at large there is a general feeling abroad that religion is played out that the system of hebrew ethics which has been drilled into the english blood by generations of the faithful was all very well for the faithful but is altogether impractical and out of harmony with the present intelligent times you will find englishmen nowadays complaining that the taint of spiritualism asceticism and ethical faith which they have inherited from their people is a source of hindrance to them in the matter of their commercial or social progress and their lives are spent in an endeavour to eradicate or to triumph over that taint the archbishop of canterbury could not run a tea-shop by the rules laid down in the sermon on the mount they will tell you and what is worse the archbishop of canterbury agrees with them take all thou hast and give it to the poor is out of the question even for dr horton since those blessed words were said we are told the poor law has sprung up 
we give all that is necessary for pauperism in the poor rate and thanks to the excellence of our social system it is now impossible for man woman or child to die of starvation provided only they will work i have heard it stated by an english nonconformist minister that his chief complaint against the roman catholic community in his district was their habit of being over-liberal to the poor no man is refused observed my nonconformist friend no matter how dissolute or idle or irreligious he may be then in the large question of the employment of human flesh and blood to make money for you the modern englishman finds that he must either tear the effects of his religious bringing up out of his heart or forego the possibility of becoming really rich don't you know it is all a matter of supply and demand and if the mass of humanity live starved lies and die daily in order that i may be fat and warm and cultured and possessed of surpluses at banks it is not my fault you must really blame supply and demand with this fine phrase on his lips the english capitalist confutes all the philosophies and sets his foot on the majority of the decencies of life of course i shall be told that the prince and chief of all hidebound industrial capitalists is mr andrew carnegie who happens to be a scot and i cheerfully admit that mr carnegie is a very serious case in point but for our one mr carnegie the english have fifty mr carnegies they may not be so rich or so famous but there they are and the blood and spirit of the english people suffer accordingly the religion of the wealthy does not prevent them from grinding the face of the poor and the religion of the middle classes is of pretty much the same order it is at the hands of the english middle classes that the english poor suffer a further and a bitterer depredation for when you have earned money hardly you want good goods for it and the english middle classes who are nearly all shopkeepers either directly or indirectly make a point of palming off on you the very worst goods the law will allow them to sell and in spite of all the churches continue to open their doors new churches continue to be built million-pound funds are raised the missionary speeds over the blue wave to the succour of the heathen and english women and children have their pleasant sunday afternoons and bishops keep high-stepping horses church and state are grappled together with hooks of steel and england is a christian country till the churches get out of their slippers and their sloth and their tea-bibbing and their tolerance matters will go on in the same old futile scandalous way if they are to have a charge and direction of the soul of man they must remember that the soul of man is a greater thing than ease and a greater thing than the church they must not play with the immortal part of humanity and they must not trifle with the things which they believe to be of god in no other country save england would such churches and such priests as the english now possess be tolerated or supported it is the english decadence which has rendered englishmen blind to the stupidity and banality of their pastors and spiritual guides and it is the english easy-heartedness which permits the game of cant and cadge and sham to go on unchecked End of chapter nine chapter ten the politician the flower and exemplar of well-nigh everything that is choicely and brutally english may be summed up in the english politician such a tub-thumper such a master of claptrap and the arts and feints and fetches of oratory has never been known before since the world began he is english and therefore he knows his business 
he has made a study of it as a business and without regard to its more serious issues his position is that if he would do himself well he must tie himself hand and foot to some party and serve that party through thick and thin then in the end and with good luck will come reward you may be born in a chandler's office by birth therefore you belong to the very lower english middle class through the practice of a number of commercial virtues and with the help of considerable speculation outside your own business you become wealthy now wealth without honour is nothing to an englishman he cannot brook that his wealth his shining glorious superfluity should be hidden under a bushel therefore he seeks municipal honours he becomes a town councillor an alderman a mayor even but these after all are not the summits they lead at best only to a common knighthood and any fool can get knighted if he wants to so you determine to seek parliamentary honours you subscribe liberally to the funds of your party and by and by a constituency is found for you to contest you lose the fight and subscribe again another constituency is found for you and you win by the skin of your teeth or with a plumping majority as the case may be you are now a full-blown member of parliament it is worth the money and much better than being a mayor up to this time you have been an orator of sorts you have held forth from schoolroom platforms and the tops of wagons what time the assembled populace shouted and threw up its sweaty nightcaps you have been carried shoulder high behind brass bands rendering see the conquering hero comes now however you are really in parliament and for the nonce for several years in fact you must give up talking there is plenty for you to do you may put questions on the paper you may get a look in at committee work you may show electors around the houses and you may go on subscribing liberally to the party funds when you have subscribed enough it is just within the bounds of possibility that the heads of the party the front bench people as it were will begin to discover that there is virtue in you you will be encouraged to make a speech or two at the slackest part of debates and some fine day you may be entrusted with the fortunes of a little bill which your party wishes to rush through all the while you are subscribing liberally to the party funds after many years when you are least expecting it the bottom seems to fall out of the universe that is to say there is a general election you have to fight your seat you win you come nobly back behold your party is in power then comes the grand moment of your life you are shoveled into the cabinet on account of services rendered from this point if you possess any ability at all you can have things pretty much your own way and if your ambition has been to hear yourself called my lord before you die and to see your wife in the peeress's gallery on great occasions and your sons swanking about town with honourable before their names you can manage it it is a slow job and it involves many years of hard work and lavish expenditure but it is politically possible in england for a man to be born on the flags and to die properly set forth in burke and debrett i do not say for a moment that the end and aim of every english politician is the peerage but i do say that as a rule his labours are directed towards some end of honour or emolument and seldom or never to the good of the state 
it is ambition and not patriotism that fires his bosom it is self-aggrandizement and not a desire for the welfare of the english people that keeps him going and it is party and not principle that guides and rules his legislative actions of course the great art of being a politician is to hide these facts from the public if you went down to your constituency like an honest man and said gentlemen i wish you to return me to parliament in order that i may make a high position for myself in order that i may become a man of rank and the founder of a family your constituency would hurl dead cats at you therefore you go down with an altogether different tale i'm going to the house of commons gentlemen in your interests and not in mine it will cost me large sums of money besides which as your member i shall be expected to subscribe to all the local cricket clubs but i have the best interests of muckington at heart and if you honour me by making me your representative money is no object it is a wonderful business and a great and a glorious one stands in astonishment before the bright english intelligence which takes so much on promise and gets so little performed an english party never gets into power with the intention of doing more than half of what it has promised to do at election times its great business is to capture votes these must be had at any price short of rank bribery and once landed with the blessed the party immediately settles down not to the work of carrying out its promises but to the far more serious business of keeping itself in power from the point of view of the careless lay observer the house of commons is an assemblage for the discussion of imperial affairs with a view to their being managed in the best possible way to the politician it is just an arena in which two sets of greedy men meet to annoy thwart ridicule and bring about the downfall of each other the amount of interest the englishman is supposed to take in this amazing assemblage and its doings makes it plain that the englishman himself is well-nigh as foolish and well-nigh as oblique as the person whom he elects to represent him next to royalty itself there is nobody in england who can command so much attention and such a prominent place in the picture as the politician if he be a cabinet minister of any standing it is impossible for him to walk through the streets either of london or of any of the english provincial towns without being immediately recognized and respectfully saluted whereas if he happens to have come to any metropolitan district or provincial town on political business bent he may depend upon being received at the proper point by the local authorities supported by a guard of honour of the local volunteers and he may also depend upon more or less of an ovation on his way to and from the place of meeting year in and year out too the illustrated papers of every degree blossom with his latest photograph mr so-and-so in his new motor-car mr so-and-so playing golf mr so-and-so and the king mr so-and-so addressing the mob from the railway station these are pictures in which every englishman has delighted from his youth up and in which he will always find great artistic and moral satisfaction as for the journals which live out of the personal paragraph they must give or imagine they must give pride of place to the politician or perish little anecdotes of the sayings and doings of the politically great are always marketable it is not necessary that they should have the slightest foundation in truth but they must be neat reasonably amusing and flattering to the personage involved 
it is when one turns to the english daily papers however that one begins to understand what an extraordinary hold the political interest has upon the english public mind it is well known that in the main the debates in the house of commons are quite dull colourless and somnolent functions half of them take place in the presence only of the speaker and a quorum that is to say nine nights out of ten members spend the greater portion of their time in the smoke-rooms dining-rooms and lobbies and not in the house itself the simple reason being that as a rule the debates are not interesting when some reputable champion of either party gets on his legs or when some wag is up members manage to attend in force but it is only at these moments that they do so yet if you pick up an english morning newspaper you will find six columns of that sheet devoted to a report of the proceedings in parliament another three columns of descriptive matter bearing on the same proceedings and out of four or five leaders three at least deal with the political question of the moment even when parliament is not sitting the first leader is never by any chance other than political from the point of view of the dull english mind nothing more important than a political happening can happen in this world mr somebody has called mr somebody else a liar across the floor of the house of commons it is essential for the well-being of the country at large that the episode should be reported with a separate subhead and great circumstance in the parliamentary report that the scene should be described by the lively and picturesque pen of the writer of the parliamentary sketch that the appearance of the gentleman who called the other gentleman a liar should be dwelt upon in the notes that instances of other gentlemen having called gentlemen liars across the floor of the house should also be given in the notes and finally that a rotund and windy leader should be written wherein is discussed gravely the general advisability of gentlemen calling other gentlemen liars across the floor of the house wherein one is assured that in spite of occasional regrettable instances of the kind the english parliament is the most decorous and dignified assemblage under the sun and wherein we cannot refrain from paying our tribute of respectful admiration to the right honourable the speaker whose tact good sense and gentlemanlike spirit coupled with the firmness resolution and knowledge of the procedure of the house becoming to his high position invariably enable him to still the storm and to repress the angry passions of our heated legislators before any great harm has been done so that a gentleman who calls another gentleman a liar across the floor of the house of commons really renders a great service to englishmen inasmuch as he provides them with a gratuitous entertainment about which they may read talk and argue for at least twenty-four hours recognizing their own love of politics and political strife and knowing in their hearts that the talk in the house of commons not to mention the house of lords is generally speaking of the flattest and flabbiest one would imagine that the wise english would be at some pains to take measures calculated to brighten up the parliamentary debates and render them of real interest but no such precautions are taken when a would-be member of parliament is heckled he is never by any chance asked if he is prepared at the psychological moment to pull the nose of one of the right honourable gentlemen opposite 
any member of parliament who in the middle of a dull debate would walk across the floor and box the ears of say uh, mr balfour or lord hugh cecil would thereby earn for himself the distinction of being the best discussed and best described man in england for quite half a week considering the small amount of exertion required for such a proceeding and the very large amount of notoriety which would accrue to the person who ventured on it one wonders that it has never been done in spite of the abnormal share of publicity and applause which is extended to the english politician however the solemn fact remains that he is seldom a person of any real force capacity understanding or character commonplace mediocre insincere inept are the epithets which best describe him he passes through the legislative chamber or chambers says his say in undistinguished speeches casts his vote earns his place his pension or his peerage and passes beyond our echo and our hail the daily papers manufacture for him an obituary notice varying in length from five lines to a couple of columns and nobody wants to hear anything more about him as a matter of fact he has left the world neither wiser nor wittier nor happier than he found it if he has made one phrase or uttered one sentiment that sticks in men's minds he is fortunate neither history nor posterity will have anything to say about him although in his day he kicked up some fuss and took up a lot of room in short politics as a career in england is not a career for solid serious men it merely serves the turn of the specious the shallow the incompetent and the vainglorious End of chapter 10